Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com, code GLOW. Welcome to the latest edition of the Football Writers Podcast, featuring me, Mike Calvin, John Cross of the Daily Mirror, and David Priest, the columnist and coach. So, another Premier League season is in the books. The top four places were occupied by the clubs with the most money, which tells us something we already knew. Three of the four still have work to do. Manchester City and Chelsea, of course, meet in the Champions League final on Saturday. Manchester United play Villarreal in the Europa League final in Poland on Wednesday. Now, a club of United's stature and tradition should be judged by winning trophies. Shouldn't they, John? Absolutely. And I do think this is a huge game for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer because if he loses it, people will say... Well, yeah, he's taken the club so far. He's made progress, which I think undoubtedly he has this season. Is he a winner? This is so important. You know, people detract from the Europa League and what the Europa League stands for. You know, I was at Aston Villa yesterday driving home and I was listening to some of the radio analysis afterwards and there was sort of Mickey taking out the Europa League. Who wants to be in the Europa Conference League? Well, the fact of the matter is it's still a European trophy. And I think we're terribly, terribly sniffy in England and I think supporters of English clubs about and incredibly disrespectful to what European football means. Other other major countries and other major clubs and other major leagues take it far more seriously than we do. And okay, United are not relying on it as a passport into the Champions League. They've already secured that. But to me, it's still incredibly important it's the trophy that Jose Mourinho won in, in his stint at Old Trafford. I think he showed the value of it. I think it shows an acknowledgement of Man United's winning DNA, just how much they've enjoyed success down the years in Europe. And I think it's a huge game for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. I really do. There's no, there's no hype or trying to build this up falsely. I, I think it's a game by which we judge Solskjaer and judge Solskjaer's management. I really do. I think he has to win it. 
it's inevitable, I suppose, and and arguably pretty significant that that Solskjaer's already had to reference ninety nine European Cup. Is a better comparison, Dave. The first FA Cup that Sir Alex Ferguson won in 1990, he was three years into his job at United, as Solskjaer is. You know, is that the sort of history we should be looking at? Yeah, I think it's probably a better comparison to make. I don't think that um, I don't quite think that Solskjaer's had to, to make the same sort of shift in, in culture at the football club that was required when Sir Alex was in there. You know, they still had some very good players at the club. Obviously, Brian, like Sir Brian Robson defensively very good Palace and Bruce but I think with, with Solskjaer everything was was really there to give him a chance now of course they, they, they maybe weren't at the level that Manchester United and Liverpool have been at the last couple of years in the starting 11s but I think that it, it, you know it's it, it's two ways you look at it whether it's, a, it's an easy job being Manchester United manager you have the, the, the funds that they have you have the squad that they have and you would think it sets you up for a very good chance of success. Or you could say it's a difficult job because of all the expectation and uh, the history and the baggage of Sir Alex Ferguson. That could sort of bring you down as well. But <clears throat> it's been an interesting time for me watching Solskjaer because I think it's... I, I don't think he was qualified to take the job. We, we know the reasons why he got the job. Because of his experience at the club, it was almost a stopgap until they would find somebody. He's been given the, the the chance to to progress, and not only with him, with it with his his coaching staff as well. I think Mike Phelan must have played a, a real big part in his development as well. Sort of, kind of holding his hand, and he being the experienced guy and light behind him. But you've got inexperienced staff there as well. You've got Michael Carrick, you've got Kieran McKenna, inexperienced coaches. Of course, Michael Carrick's got the experience of being a Manchester United player. Because it's a totally different game when you're coaching, you know. It, it doesn't automatically mean you're gonna go into coaching and 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 be the same kind of force. But yeah, it, it's been really interesting for me that, that a coaching team with so much inexperience has been given this time, you know. And it, it's almost a little bit like an experiment for a club like the state Manchester United. Are you would think they were going very top level? Allegri, people like that, would come and do the job. Mourinho, as he did, so it's been real interesting. In that context, John, do you think United deserve greater credit? You know, runners-up at a time of transition in many ways. They ate more points than last season, unbeaten away all season. Credit's where it's due? Yeah, look, I do, as I said, I do think they've made progress. And they're second place. So, I mean, do you remember the, the song and dance that Mourinho made from finishing second, you know, yeah. greatest achievement? Look, I... I think that I've seen United quite a lot this season and I just felt that they were, they're nearly there, aren't they? I think that basically they are a team they could do. Uh, what's going to happen with the goalkeeper? The right back, I, you know, is Wan-Bissaka exactly what they need if they're really going to progress? And we're being picky here because they signed him for 50 million. What about a new partner for Harry Maguire? A holding midfielder. Centre forward is maybe the biggest. Cavani, what a player he's been, what a career he's had. Greenwood's one for the future. Wow, we've seen amazing flashes. But yes, they've made progress. And and you could argue if there's a few things to address, big things, actually Solskjaer's done pretty well. And they've also, by the way, sort of juggled this, this Europa League campaign in a demanding season. 
So they've got to the final. But so I give them credit, absolutely. But I just feel as if still there must be that frustration. They flirted with the title race, didn't they? I mean, do you remember they they shocked us all, didn't they? In, what was it in January going top? I mean, and we were thinking, is this possible? Is this Man United? And I actually think that that's quite telling that we were staggered that Man United <laughs> were top. Man United. I mean, it's just incredible, isn't it? I mean, that, that Man United could. We were thinking, wow, this is incredible. And yes, we kind of sort of lauded them for their win over Man City. But let's be honest, I mean, that was just chipping away at such a mountain of an advantage that City had at that time that it was an impossible thing to, to claw back. And do you know what? In the closing weeks of the season, they could have made it a little bit uncomfortable, couldn't they? They could have got it down to four points if they'd won those two back-to-back -back home games. And do you know what? They didn't. And so I think that that basically tells us all, really. And they lost at home to Liverpool in that such humiliating fashion. And yes, I know that Solskjaer blames the fixture schedule and looks at the Premier League. Well, he shouldn't be looking at the Premier League, in my view. He should look, be looking at Man United security staff. I, I was quite on board with the Man United fan protest, by the way. But I do think, come on, now you need to deliver. Because ultimately... It shouldn't be about sentiment. It shouldn't be about former great players. It should be about managing Man United. Yeah. Well, let's mention, shall we, the, the elephant, not in the room, but probably in the six-yard box. Uh, I'm going to put you on the spot, David, goalkeepers-wise. Who do you play, De Gea or Henderson? I think it's, a, it's been a really interesting few weeks in that respect because you know, he has done some chopping changes. Of course, whoever doesn't play in the Premier League usually plays in the, in the Europa League. But coming up to European Championships, which we're, I know we're going to talk about later on, for Dean Henderson, it's very, very telling that, that De Gea has been brought back in for league games as well. And, and and there doesn't seem to be that sort of security around the, the number one spot. And I think it's a, it's a real problem for them. I know a lot of people think that, you know, you've got two very good goalkeepers there, but I'm sure Oli Gunnar Solskjaer would have been wanting somebody just to really grab the shirt and say, this is mine, and, and give him no choice, really. And, and he hasn't been given that, has he? No, no, he hasn't. What about the impact of, of uh, Maguire's absence? John, obviously it's going to have connotations for the England squad as well. It does look that, that you know, Bailey's not up to it, probably as a replacement. What impact do you think that will have? Well, you know, I actually quite like Eric Bailly. I think his first season, I think he was one of Man United's best players and he's just had rotten luck with injuries. I do think he's got the attributes. But I just, time and again, the, the Bayer-Lindelof partnership hasn't been ideal. I quite like Bayer and Maguire, but I think that Maguire, the reason why I think sometimes that, that, that basically Maguire doesn't get all the credit he deserves is because not only individually is he a good defender for England and Man United, I think he's the glue sometimes that holds the defence together for both club and country. I think he's terrific. I really do. I think that basically... I've got to be honest, sometimes in the past, I've not always been his biggest lover, really, and supporter. I think sometimes he looks a bit big and a bit cumbersome, and but maybe you put him against a Van Dyke or Diaz, he, he looks a bit big for me, sort of thing. But... I just think now he's just, he just doesn't, up until this injury, he hadn't missed a minute in the Premier League for United. He's so reliable and he's so strong. And, and it's a massive miss for United because whatever they do next, however they patch it up, by the looks of it, Solskjaer will take him to Poland, but ultimately he'll just miss out. I mean, does he gamble? Does he strap that 
ankle up and then basically kind of risk it. I, I don't think he can, can afford to risk it if, you, if you're half fit. But without him, United's defence worries me because it impacts not just on the two centre-halves, but on the confidence that the full-backs have, that the confidence that the goalkeeper has. Maguire is such an important player for club and country. He really is. Mm. What about Villarreal, Dave? When you look at it, it's a lovely story, small-town club. The entire population of the town can be fitted into Old Trafford with 25,000 seats still still to spare, which is which takes some getting, getting your head around that. It's a club which relies on loans to a degree. Uh, Wan Foyth is likely to be returning Gdansk after a a hamstring issue. Is it a feel-good story that we need in these sort of times? Yeah, it is. And I also think, you know, just going back to what John was saying about the the attitude towards lesser European competitions like Europa League and obviously the, the new Conference League that's coming next year, this is why these competitions are important. You know, we, we've gone from an attitude where we, we wanted to protect the game, protect our game from the clutches of the, the few at the top and seeing it's for the, the good of football that this doesn't happen and it's protect all the clubs, you know, right down, all the way down the pyramid in every country. And then we, we, we go to, and then we look at Europa League and 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 this conference league, which it theoretically should give smaller clubs more of a chance to either be successful or certainly stay in competitions longer in Europe and give them more European experience. Uh, yep, yeah, and, and we look at it in, in disdain. You know, there's, there's a, you know, there's a bit a bit disparity there for me because we should be inclusive. And I don't know, there's a lot of people. You know, you ever want uh, saints in this? And I know that. It's kind of categorising teams. It's separating the sort of the wheat from the chaff in the European competition sense. But it it, it should theoretically be more inclusive. And, and and clubs like Villarreal, you know, doing it at this level against clubs like Manchester United, it is almost a miracle. I mean, of course, they, they've had good teams before. It's almost like a second coming of, of Villarreal and the and success that they've had before in European competitions. I, I really think that European football needs these stories and needs these clubs, not just the big guns. I, I totally agree, David. I, I just think Villarreal, what a refreshing story. I just think what an amazing story for Unai Emery as well. Just remind people in England that basically he's not that idiot after all. Mm. He's a blooming good football manager and a really good coach. And do you know what? I did see both of those games against Arsenal and it was a reminder also of... I can't quite understand how he does it because it's <laughs> such a strange thing. And basically, in every press conference you go to with, with Emery, he's always asked, you're so successful in the Europa League, what's your secret? And I, I, I don't know, but I do think that basically the league tables, the domestic league tables, in each and every season, when he goes far in the competition, I mean, particularly the last one when he was, uh, you know, when he was manager... Before he won the back-to-back three ones. I mean, they were they were had a dreadful mid, mid mid table season when I don't think they won away from home. This season they finished seventh, but quite you know quite distant seventh. They got a couple of really good players, Marino and also the centre half Torres. And I think that basically <laughs> Arsenal was so poor in the first game they looked like made one fourth look like Cafu. But the reality <laughs> is that basically it's not you know it's not really not amazing. 
and and yet he's got there together a really strong bond and a unit. They're difficult to break down and are they a pressing team? No, not really. Are the possession team? No, not really. And it's so difficult sometimes to work exa- out exactly what they are, but he's got them really, really well drilled. They do play fairly nice football. They sat so deep at the Emirates and they were hanging on at the end, but they hung on. Arsenal should have won it at the end with Aubameyang when he hits the heads against the post. But the reality was they didn't make him that work that hard. It wasn't really a, a desperate performance. It was fairly controlled. And and they've been really worth worth their weight this time. And I think that the, the, the big advantage they go into into the final is that basically, yeah, they've had a pretty average season in, in, in La Liga. And then basically, therefore, kind of feel as if, well, they'll go into it fairly refreshed and they'll think, yeah, we can do it again, to be honest. And they've got the man who knows how to do it. What's his secret? Well, I still don't know. <laughs> Yeah, just stay mysterious. That usually works, doesn't it? Yeah. What about you know Manchester United's last game on Sunday was was yet another away win at Wolves. David, were you surprised by Nuno's departure, or are we seeing you know the the wheels of business turning here? You know there is a Wolves insist that there's no formal relationship with uh, Jorge Mendes. However, when you look a little bit deeper, Fosun, the owners, had a relationship with Mendes before they bought into English football. One of their subsidiary firms owns a percentage of one of the agent's companies. Fosun's owner calls him a friend and an advisor. Obviously, you know, the the Premier League inquiry uh, suggested that there wasn't a formal link. But surely the influence of Mendes is, is obvious here, isn't it? Yeah, of course it is. It's you know, isn't there a way strip even the the, the Portugal uh, national team strip? You know, it's um, yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, they, they, they've took the uh, took the right down the last de- the smallest detail. But I think that with regards to to Nuno, I mean, four years in the job, he, he's had a good run at it. He's put himself in a position for the first three years where he was unsackable. He did a, ter- a terrific job, and. and I find this with a with a lot of clubs that get rid of a manager after the the first real dip. They rarely get a chance to sort of have another bash at it, and it's a it's a little bit sad. But it, in the environment we're working in now, four years and it is a like I said, it's a decent run at it. And I think that I don't I don't buy that it was by mutual consent. I think you know you could see that he was he, he was very sad to be leaving and. He made no reference to it before in his press conference on Friday when word was that, you know, he'd had the meeting or he'd had the phone call on Monday to tell him that he that he wasn't needed anymore. And I think that um, clubs can plateau and the, the, the owners are obviously seeing that. And, and there's a lot of context to it as well. They, they've had... However, he's done at Spurs. Dockney was a very good player for Wolves. That's what won him the move there. You know, you've got Jota leaving, you've got Jimenez, big parts to that team that was uh, that was successful before that got into Europa League. So I think it's um, yeah, there's a bit of context behind it as well. But again, we're not at the club, and with a lot of managers, they probably don't lose dressing rooms, but there is a sort of a waning of their powers and their and their influence. On the players, and if they've seen that, then it's probably time to refresh things a little bit. Yeah, but refresh within a certain parameter, I suppose, John, in terms of nationality. 
you know, all the managerial candidates that we've been talking about, they're all Portuguese, aren't they? I wonder who they're represented by as well. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, yeah, I just... The only thing I'd say about, about, about Wolves... Now, listen, I know these sort of implications are there. Wolves is a really, really refreshing story, and that basically we will pick away at it and sort of say, oh, kind of, is the link with, with Mendes too strong and... You know what's happening. Don't you think? Don't you think, John? Though, don't you think? Sorry to butt in. Don't you think that the club has lost some of its identity? And if that is the case, do the fans care about that? Well, I tell you what, Mike. The only thing I thought was that I thought Nuno, bearing in mind what he did, taking the club into the Premier League, restoring kind of some sort of tradition and former glories, the connection with the local community. He's incredible charitable donations, the work that he did. I thought that that, bearing in mind that he's got that obvious link, well, is, is that losing their identity? I actually think it's giving it back. So I, 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 know, I know exactly what you're saying. Am That's I completely comfortable with it? No, but I just do think there's kind of the, the flip side of that is, and listen, you know, on David's point, I totally agree in that maybe you've gone as far as you go and... <laughs> If that is Wolves' view, then that's not great for kind of Nuno's prospects for a, to take a step up, if you like. I don't think he's in the front for Spurs anyway, but do you know what I mean? That, that's the problem. And and so I do think that Nuno has got a bit of an issue there. I, I totally agree with David in that basically, look, I think he's sacked at the start of the week. I think he knew he was going at the end of the week, uh, sorry, at the start of the week. And therefore, that's why I don't think it came out in the press conference. They've got one of the best press officers around, actually. And then basically, I don't think that he he allows that to happen. But Nuno's clearly gone into that press conference and thought, well, I'm not going to play your games, basically. I'm not going to say nice platitudes about the owners and the club. And that basically, that's my reading of it. I don't think it was uh, disingenuous towards the press. I just think it was the way that it worked. I think we have to accept that. And that basically, Nuno decided, well... I'm not gonna, not gonna say how amazing this. I'll say how amazing the club is and the fans are, but I'll leave it at that. Thanks very much. And I think, I think it's sad, really. But I do, I, I can see both sides, and I, th- I don't think it's a simple argument because anyone that goes to Molyneux has a great experience. I love seeing a great old club like Wolves back. I, I think that also, you know, you, you could, from a, a moralistic point of view, you can, you can see that. One person from outside the club having so much influence, it, it can't be healthy. But you're saying about the, you know, the the, the fabric of the club and, and and what it stands for. But I think what the the owners and this Portuguese influence has had or has given them is sort of an identity. This is the, this is who they are now, and we always talk about different clubs, English clubs, who they've never got the director of football part right. You know, where we see clubs in Germany and on the continent where they're, there's one person at the top who sets the agenda for the whole club and there's a, you know, there's a thread going through everything, through recruitment, through the hiring of coaches. Well, Wolves have got that now. They're not going to jump from philosophy to philosophy to philosophy. Portuguese managers in general are, are very much of, a, a, of the same ilk in the way that they work, in the way that they play. So if... If they're happy with the way the things have been done under Nuno, and they want to just want to be tweaked and sort of, like I said, livened up again, and a fresh voice in there, somebody with similar philosophy, and and can maybe you know build on what they did last season and push a little bit further and do what Leicester and West Ham have done this season, then maybe it's the right thing to do. 
You mentioned Spurs there, John. If I gave you a nice shiny penny to put on who would be the uh, next Spurs manager, who would it be? Yeah, it's a really difficult one. Do you know what? I've actually I've been sending out a few inquiries this morning, actually, before we came on. Well, the, the issue here is who would they like it to be as compared to who it will be, mm. I think will end up being two different things. That's the problem. I think that basically, yes, they'd probably like Brendan Rodgers. I don't think he's going to... I don't think there's a go at all. I think the next target might be Roberto Martinez, who obviously is locked in, and that's not ideal with Belgium. So Inzaghi's been linked, linked with Graham Potter. Now, I think that's really interesting because I think that basically, if that if this were a sort of a clubs in in Germany, for example, I think it would actually be quite a natural progression. Graham Potter's had a decent enough season, and I think they're basically a champion. They're kind of you know you know someone in the league and that sort of thing. And it's yeah, it's 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 a difficult one. I probably wouldn't waste my penny at this time, Mike. To be <laughs> honest, because I don't know that, that Levy knows for sure. I think he's undoubtedly got targets. And I think he's looking for a a big-name foreign target in an ideal world. And I think that basically that's probably going to be a Martinez or, or Inzaghi or someone like that. I think, he need, I think he needs to win back the fans. And I think that basically whether we agree with this or not, if they can't get Rodgers, then the next best thing will be a kind of a... A glamour signing. Will it be enough to keep Harry Kane? Is the next question. I doubt it. <laughs> no, no. I think uh, that's going to be a um, a saga. And I've, I've made a promise to myself that we're not going to discuss Harry Kane on every show until <laughs> until Christmas. There are people saying goodbye over the weekend, David. As a goalkeeper, give me your impression of Sergio Aguero. You know, he's going to Barcelona on a two-year deal. I know defenders hate playing against him. As a goalkeeper, what, what do you think of him? Well, I know that he'd be somebody who, if you're playing against him, that there wouldn't be one moment you can relax. You know, we, we've seen some of his finishing where he's... What makes him so predatory is that, you know, he can catch the keepers unaware. He can finish so quickly without having to sort of set him up and to give goalkeepers any physical cues what he's going to do. And for defenders, he's just a nightmare because, I mean, you saw in a space of 10, 15 minutes yesterday of one, his finishing ability and two, just his ability to, to, to drift in between defenders and become a danger when, you know, apparently you think you've got everything covered. You know, there was two defenders in the middle of that box and he managed to find space in between them to head home. And, yeah, he's, he's somebody who's... I think everyone thought that or assumed that as soon as Pep came in, give him one or two seasons and he would be out the door. And he actually developed his game a little bit differently and, and changed rather than just be this singularly box player, you know. He was he was never going to be the, the, the player that's... That eventually Pep Guardiola will have as a striker, whether they have a striker at all, if that, in, in, in that case. But um, <laughs> but I, I just I just think that you know you're seeing that the outpouring from Pep yesterday that you know how emotionally he got talking about him, not just a player as a person, and and after ten years we were actually treated to a an interview in English from Sergio, which was uh, which was an honour as well. <laughs> uh, T- showing us that we all knew that he could speak very good English all along, you know. But um, 
Yeah. Another, you know, with your Arsenal hat on, John, David Luiz, as a character, I love him. As a player, I'm not sure I want to build my defence around him, but give me your impression of him, please. So I think that basically if they'd had a better season and had really guaranteed that Europa League spot earlier, then I think that David Luiz probably would have stayed. I do think there's an element of finance here as much as anything else. I really do. Because I think that Arteta quite likes him in, in the dressing room. And I can see that because I do think he's a bit of a character. I know he's, he really divides opinion. And I was thinking, oh, come on, what they're doing sort of kind of signing David Lewis. And at times he's been so reckless and he's been so stupid with decision-making. And, and yet I do know throughout this season that he's been seen as quite a big character and important, influential character in the dressing room. It's been a couple of games where I was talking to someone who's sort of kind of real football opinion I trust and sort of he's saying, if only Lewis had been playing. I sort of said, well, Really? It was a game where Arsenal had done much of the attacking. He said, well, yeah, because basically his long-range passing basically stretches teams and stretches opponents, and his passing is really good. I do think overall this season has somewhat surprised me because I think that last season, if you'd asked me, I would have said, come on, time to move on. But even though he's been a bit in and out and injuries, I think there's more obvious candidates that perhaps should be perhaps moving on and maybe character not not so great, thinking I actually I've come around to Louise in a way. I'm not saying that he'd start every week, but I think he'd be quite good around the place to have in the squad. And I think it's a little bit of a loss. But they have to move in a different direction. The squad needs so much work this summer. So much work. And I just get the feeling not just about sales to raise cash, it's about pruning that squad to get the contracts and wage bill in shape. And Louise has come a cropper on that, I think. Yeah. Probably the the most public farewell on Sunday was from Jeannie Wijnaldum at Anfield. There's no great time, is there, to, to say farewell as a professional footballer to, to a club that you've obviously contributed to. But again, does that show you, David, that... You know, there's a natural progression at clubs and Liverpool, having excelled themselves by finishing third, they need to develop their squad as well. Yeah, they do. And just from uh, Jeannie's point of view, I think it's also important, you know, when you when you want to leave a, a legacy of some sort at a club and leave your 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 footprint there, it is better to move on before the decline happens. He's been such an integral figure in what they've done over the past four seasons. Two Champions League finals, one winning one of them, league title. Of course, they've had the troubles this year, but he, he won't top that. And he's at an age where he can still do something in a different environment. And and, and I think that sometimes footballers need that challenge as well. As he, wonderful a time he's at the club, and I'm sure he loves the club, loves the fans, and the fans love him. It's the right moment to do what he's doing now and just to step away and just and, and sort of put that in a little box so he can cherish it rather than have it sort of tainted by something that, you know, you know, if he, if he doesn't play a lot next season, you know, the, like you said, the natural progression of, of, of ro- rotating the squad and improving it that, you know, he might get pushed aside a little bit more next season. It, it's better to do what he's doing now. And look, I mean... I first came across him on Football Manager. He was a 17-year-old wonder kid at PSV, you know? 
That's why I first came against him. <laughs> and, and like, and, and now... Did you pick him? Oh, I always bought him. I always bought him, yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, then moving to Newcastle onto Liverpool, and now he's... You could put him in that bracket with all those great um, Liverpool midfielders now for what he's achieved at the club. And like I said, that the, the game against Barcelona, uh, you know, where he scores the uh, two goals and... That's that's the moment that encapsulated everything he's done for the club. All the all the great midfielders, you know, McDermott, Sooners, Gray Kennedy, and Mulby and Whelan. You can put him in with all them now. Yeah, there will be change there, John. Do you think it will involve Alex Oxlade Chamberlain? Injuries, his career has stuttered. At twenty-seven, has he still got time to come again? Okay, so it's a really tough one, Mike. And I'll be perfectly honest. I do think that we, we're sometimes coloured, aren't we, as journalists, by, by our view of a player. And he's such a nice, articulate guy, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. I think he's a, he's a breath of fresh air. He's incredibly intelligent. He's bright, both on and off the pitch. Got that cheeky smile. He's got a great sense of humour. And I'd be lying if I said that, basically. I didn't really like him. I really wish and hope that he succeeds. And look, if you judge it by what, Jurgen Klopp says you'd say there's no chance of him leaving the summer because he, he's reiterated recently, hasn't he, that, that how much he likes him and how much he rates him. He's going nowhere, basically. But if you then judge it against how many times he's actually picked him, particularly to start, you're thinking, well, does he rate him? Has he got a future? And I think that's the issue. For, for me, I think that that goal at Burnley that he scored recently was, was sort of typified his game. So he's incisive from midfield, cuts inside, really sharp, sees the opportunity, goes for it, takes it. I think one big issue is, and I know that there's been offers relatively recently, that, that, that Liverpool said no. And by the way, I don't think Oxlade-Chamberlain wanted to go either, was that they don't score enough goals from midfield. And I think that basically, I did interview him up at Melwood, what, just before lockdown, actually, in the title-winning season. So it seems like an eternity ago now. You know, I was saying, you're having a really good season. You know, you're playing a lot of consecutive games. And he, he'd come up with this bizarre stat that he hadn't played that many consecutive games, I don't think, even for Arsenal. You know, so it was great to see him doing so well. And then he, he, we ran the piece on the Monday, and I think the game was against West Ham, and he wasn't in the starting lineup. <laughs> you know, I just thought, oh, God, I feel so sorry for the lad. But he has got a decision to make because of his age this summer. If he went, I think there'd be a lot of offers because goal-scoring attacking midfielders are, are hard to come about, particularly of the of the highest quality. And I just think maybe he needs a fresh start, but equally I can see why he's so reluctant to leave that football club because it's fantastic opportunity and potential there. Mm. Yeah, Chelsea, uh, Thomas Tuchel admitted, David, that they were lucky to get into the Champions League. Isn't it ironic that given all the resources that they threw at the offensive side of the game, that their leading scorer this season is Jorginho, simply through scoring seven penalties. Yeah, it's, it, 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 it is a worry for them. We'll have talked in the past about the, the, the problems that uh, Timo Werner's had uh, in front of goal and... It's a difficult one with him because you you just think that if he wasn't in getting those positions to to score goals and, and to miss those chances, then it'd be more of a worry. And if he keeps going like that, surely the goals will come. But if if you're not playing with an out and out striker as well for much of the season, then you, you're reducing your opportunity to 
to get that um, total of goals, but it's um, it is a real worry for them. And but it's also the it, it, if you change a side, so it's it's very solid defensively. They've had some hell of a amount of clean sheets since you come into the club. So there's always going to be a, a sort of an offset of that. Uh, you know, you're going to lose a little bit of an attacking terms, but. They've got, to, in my opinion, they've got they've got a great balance there. As long as they give, their, give themselves a chance defensively, like they have been doing, then they're always going to be in games and uh, and very rarely be out of games. You know, it, early in games, for for me, it's they can try and tweak it so they they they, they create more opportunities. But I mean, yeah, if you're getting if you're getting clean sheets, then. Maybe I'm a bit biased in that department. That, uh, <laughs> that I think that if, if you're getting clean sheets, then the rest of it will take care of itself, really. Yeah. You, know, you saw Chelsea at Villa Park, John. Is there a sense that they're losing just a slight bit of momentum? Yeah, that was my big takeaway from the game. I mean, Mendy is always an interesting one for me. He's the most unconventional goalkeeper, really, but he's very effective, isn't he? <laughs> I don't, yeah, could talk all day with David about it, really. But And Kepa is, is Kepa. Kepa is not, I don't think, brilliantly suited for English football, and it's an all-English final. I mean, I, if Mendy's collided with the frame of the goal and hurt his ribs, that doesn't sound great. And I think Mendy's been very, very important for them. And Kepa doesn't give the Saint the defence so many so much confidence. Listen, I know it's a different competition, so it doesn't carry over. Cesar Aspelaquerta didn't have a very good game, and he ends up getting sent off in frustration. Most unlike him. And then basically again, they're struggling to score goals. And I tell you what, Mason Mount, brilliant, absolutely fantastic this season. He's run out of gas. He has, and he's such an important player for them. He missed two chances yesterday, one really big one. And it was at nil-nil and not being funny, but a sharp in full Mason Mount gobbles that up. Mason Mount is so important, so good for Chelsea and he's just gone off the boil a bit. If you'd asked me three weeks ago, I would have said, Chelsea, whew, you know what, they're so dangerous. I could, I could see them doing it now. I think now Man City going as red hot, red hot favourites to, to win this game. Just because I think Chelsea have just lost that little bit of spark the Arsenal defeat was a big one. FA Cup final was a huge setback. And let's get let's be straight here. Didn't play that. I mean, they played well in phases. I thought they played quite well first half. But then, as David rightly says, it's the age-old problem. They can't score goals. They need a striker big time. And they need, need a bit more midfield creativity, actually, as well. But they just can't convert their possession. And they've just lost that spark. And so, I just think, unfortunately, yeah. I mean, Tuchel, I love Tuchel, by the way. He's been a breath of fresh air. So much better than I thought he would be. So I wouldn't write him off because just because I love his infectious enthusiasm. He's got a hell of a week to turn around the mood at the club, I do think. Or the dressing room, I should say, really. Hmm. Just like to dwell on, on the best of the rest briefly, David. You know, Leicester probably did run out of gas. They finished fifth. West Ham, you know, the sixth. A great achievement. Are they possibly the season's great overachievers? They, they are, you know, compared to last year. But you look at their performances and certainly of individuals this year, it, it goes against what we've what we've said a lot about West Ham over the years about their, their recruitment. Maybe basket case is a bit of an exaggeration. But there they, they hadn't seemed to be any sort of real... Um, 
like we talked before with Wolves about a thread running around the club that with the recruitment there didn't really seem to be any real thread running through the, you know, the type of player that they, they wanted it was a bit of a hodgepodge of players but whether it's by sort of just pure luck or they really have knuckled down these past few years in recruitment terms you know look at the players that they've got now like even like Balbuena Bonner Diop Fornells Dawson Soufal Suchek Bourne Lingard They've all performed very well, like you know. And I remember being, you know, I think West Ham played either Spurs or Liverpool a few years ago. And it was like Balbuena and Diop were first, just first to come to the club. And they took a little while uh, to, to adjust. And it didn't look like they were going to be great successes. But, you know, they, they've they've fitted in so well. And Fornells, his goal yesterday as well, he's proven a, a real big part of that team. And the problem now is, you know, when they have these, these players like Suchek, Declan Rice, it's about keeping them together now, isn't it? And making sure that they have a platform there to to either keep where they are or push on that little bit more so they can get you know sort of fifth and fourth. Yeah. What about Leeds, John? Four, they ended with four straight wins, got twenty four points from the last eleven matches. What about the nature of Bielsa's squad and his influence on them? How impressed have you been? Absolutely. If you want someone to come up from the championship provide a little bit of extra entertainment, really provide something extra and different to the Premier League that is, I don't know, just gives you a bit of a buzz and you look forward to watching a particular team, then it's Bielsa. And I think that Bielsa has been terrific. There was so much written and said that I was beginning to think, blimey, it's a bit overkill, a bit overhyped sort of thing really before going into, into, into the season. I, uh, some people were absolutely champion the guy. And listen, you know, I mean, it's so much respect from from tried and trusted managers. So, you know, you have to have to give this guy huge respect for what he's achieved and the standards he's set in his career. I, I just raised those expectation levels and then some for me. What did Leeds expect? Settle nicely in in, in the Premier League to be mid table? Well, I think he's done that and more. In that because he's brought a refreshing style of play, it's all energy. So much was said about Leeds, oh, they'll burn out. They always burn out under Bielsa. Well, you've just said it, Mike, haven't you? They're, they're running in their last 11 games. is sensational. You know, he's managed it well. The players done a couple of Leeds interviews this season and the players love him. They love to be pushed. They're energised by him. I think he's great. I think he's been a breath of fresh air for, for the Premier League. And I have to say... Every time I, I get to see a Leeds team or a Leeds game, I'm thinking, yeah, great. I, I, I'll, I'll see something today. I'll watch something a bit different. The way that he coaches players, I think, is terrific. Because if you look at it, there's a lot of players there, a lot of championship survivors. And I think, yes, of course he's added to it. Of course he's blended it. But he's improved those players. And I think that's the hallmark of a really top, top manager and coach. What's your impression of him as a as a coach, Dave? You know, if you look at the stats, and it's in in its most simple form, that squad runs further, harder, and faster than any other squad in the Premier League. Yeah, and, and not just further, like a lot further. And it's obviously down to the, his philosophy and the way that they play. And a lot of the times, you know, if if you want to bring it down to its simplest form, you know, they, they, they do go man for man all over the all over the pitch. And 
times when they have been sort of, you know, they've, they've conceded threes and fours, especially early in the season. It only has to take one part of that system to break down. Then you're in a whole world of trouble, especially in the Premier League. It's just really interesting that, you know, he's having so much success and and it's easy for players to, for him to be popular with the players when things are going well because he reels against everything that we see in modern management. When you see the likes of Klopp and Guardiola, Graham Potter, you know, working with emotional intelligence with his players and, and having more of a, a personal bond with them. You can't say you can't say that about the the Leeds players. I mean, speaking, I spoke to a few a few guys who have been around the squad and, and and not quite in there. They barely know him. They know what they see on the pitch. That's what they get from Bielsa. They know what they see in the in the dressing room, the dugout. Apart from that, they they know nothing else. So they, back in the old days when I used to play, a lot of managers like to keep you on your toes and and not so you don't know where you stand with them, so you don't get too comfortable and. Leeds have got that but like I was saying before about the, everything going well at the moment it'd be really interesting to see you know once this honey, well I don't know it's honeymoon period but once this period of success sort of levels off a little bit and to see how players and, and the club handle it then because I'm really interested this season's been really interesting for me because of what's happened with Manchester United in the, in the first half of the season, what's been happening at, at Spurs and Arsenal, what's been happening at, uh, at Liverpool, how do these big managers cope with when it doesn't go well? You know, it's, it, they've had wonderful success at Manchester City and, and Liverpool, but especially this season, it's been a real test for, for Jurgen Klopp. And it's it's really interesting for me to see how they how they change in front of the camera, whether they do change in front of the camera and, and how it affects them on the sideline as well, you know, so it's... Yeah, it's it's been a really interesting season from that perspective. Yeah, I'd give his translator some sort of an award for the season. I think he's a star. <laughs> uh, um, I suppose also the impact when you think about it. We we were doubting Patrick Bamford. He scored seventeen goals. Throwing it forward to tomorrow, John and Gareth Southgate unveiling his twenty-six man squad for the Euros. I think we can probably assume that Bamford will be judged unlucky not to have made it, but he won't be in the squad. Where where are your surprises? Or your con- or, or your controversies? What will be the narrative for the next few days? I mean, honestly, it's Alexander-Arnold. And I don't think he'll be in, but that will be the big one that everyone talks about. Yeah, but he, he, he was brilliant and he finished the season well. Listen, I think Alexander-Arnold should be in. I do think it's it's, it's an odd one. From Southgate's perspective, and I, I don't necessarily agree with this, is it's obviously about a defensive thing. If he's going to go with a four, then predominantly, then maybe he sees Alexander-Arnold as a right wing-back. He admitted himself that maybe it's down to him that he hasn't produced his club form for his country, which I agree with, probably. Southgate has to take a sort of a share of that. But ultimately, if England leave out one of the best weapons in their armoury and I genuinely believe that that he's such a good crosser he's such a good set piece taker that this is bonkers absolutely bonkers because I think he'll end up taking three right backs if you like but I think one of them will be Carl Walker no one's denying what a great season Carl Walker has had as a conventional right back but for England he can also play right side of centre half get Alexander Arnold in there I just, I just don't understand it. I understand that Trippier's had such a good season at Atletico Madrid. Don't get me wrong, but just take all three. 
But I think he'll go elsewhere. I think it could be Rhys James, you know, someone like that, who's, you know, who's going to be great in the future. But I just think Alexander-Arnold is, is, is ahead of him. That is the big talking point. I think Henderson will be in. I think Jack Grealish will be in. I think he'll pick Maguire. But I just feel as if that, that's the thing. And listen, I, I, it's too late for players now like Bamford, I guess. They should have been in in March. But I do, I do feel as if Bamford has been unlucky. But I think Calvert-Lewin has proved himself to be a really, really top-class backup for Kane. Yeah, I, I agree with you that the whole sort of right-back area or right-wing-back area will be the you know, the area of, of real debate and probably a bit of anger. I, I too, would, would pick Alexander-Arnold and probably not Reese James. I think you've got to take Trippier. I, I thought it was really interesting, the respect with which he was held by... Atletico, both and, and and the Spanish press, they 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 love him. He's been shifting in in different phases of of play. You know, he's been playing wing back, full back, that almost a hybrid type of role. I think the other area we'll be talking about, David, is goalkeeping, which is quite handy since you're around. Nick Pope, if I'm honest, he would be my first choice goalkeeper. He's facing minor surgery on a knee problem, which suggests. Gareth Southgate might have a, a major problem on his hands. Yeah, it could look at the way that it, the decision's been made from, you know. Henderson, although having a decent season and, and being doing well enough to 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 win the shirt against um Dav De Gea and keep it for a certain period. I just think Jordan Pickford, since he come back from his, his small injury, I think he had a rib injury, um uh, a few weeks back, and he, he's been taken in and out of the team with uh, Robin Olsen. But I think he's actually his performances have been good of late. I think we can discard yesterday's performance against Manchester City as sort of, you know, a thankless task trying to stop Man- Manchester City on, uh, yesterday. But um, I think it's the decision's been made from now. And you know, just looking at that situation, you know, you've got to think, if, if Pope doesn't come through, then you, you probably think that Sam Johnson will be taken as a number three. But also, and I think we've spoke about this before, you know, I know that uh, Robert Sanchez has been called up by, by Spain for the last squad, Did he didn't play. He's somebody who's been in the, the country since he was 15 years old, and I know there was moves and inquiries made about, you know, possibly changing nationality to the England team. You know, we, we can argue about the, the, the morals of that. It, it, it doesn't hurt Spain, certainly, when they've, uh, when they've brought their Brazilians into the side and, and benefited from it as well. We've got some very good young goalkeepers come through, and and I think that's you know I, I'm loath to to stop the de- the development of those keepers, but when you have keepers like Robert Sanchez, when you have keepers like Emmy Martinez, who is yet to make his uh, Argentinian debut, is he 28 now? Mm. Keep keepers like that, you know, especially Robert Sanchez. I think he suits perfectly what Southgate's trying to do. You know, unbelievable goalkeeper uh, taking crosses. He, he, he doesn't even have to attack the ball. He just walks out in the middle of the box and, and just plucks him from the air, you know? With his feet, he's he's a ridiculous talent with his feet. And I think that um, it's a, it's definitely a, an, an avenue that's, that should be looked down further in, in the future. And I know it's, it's it's nothing to do with Euros now, you know, we, we can't really change that. It's nothing that's going to change before the Euros. But I, I definitely think it's something that should be looked into if we're looking to get, if you're looking to get the best. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting one. I must admit that didn't actually cross my mind, but yeah, it's a good one that. No, I, I play with I play with Kieran at uh, when he was on loan at Barnsley, and he's come a very long way from being substituted half time at Doncaster on a Tuesday night <laughs> when he was absolutely when he was absolutely awful, 
and, and I couldn't be more happier with him. And I, I think you're right about the the right fallback situation. Take Walker, take Trent, take Trippier. But I also think that you know, I, I wrote down the my squad, and I, I would actually play three five two or three four three, which Gareth has done in the in the past, and especially with the back three, it's so important that the the, the wing backs and the central defenders know the roles. So I would find some a place in that squad for somebody like Lewis Dunk, who was very good on the ball. He's a threat going forward, and he, he's a, he is a very good defender and used to play in that role. And also, I'd I'd, I'd I would leave Luke Shaw at home and take Chilwell and Saka as as left wing back. Mm, it's, it's interesting. I I would, I would be tempted to actually go for Ben Godfrey as well. He's really impressed me. Mm. Yeah. Do you know? I think Ben Godfrey might be in. But I think he'll be in the 30, because I think he'll name 30. And he'll take a, a few extra players there who know that they're, they're not going to be in ultimately. But it's just obviously to make up the training numbers, I think, because there's so many players involved in the Europa and Champions League final. I think Godfrey has got a, a good chance, because I do think that that will be made up with a few under-21s, just because... Up, Ordinarily, they'd be going to under twenty ones championship if we had an under twenty man under twenty ones manager that could actually deliver on so many talented players, but we didn't, so we don't. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's 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 end this if we could with with just the one abiding memory of our season. I'll sign off with mine, David. What was yours? <clears throat> well, I hope it's not the same as yours. I, I would say that it was the. Um, it was the the real against the the European Super League. I think it was at a time when you know there's so many sort of culture wars, political wars, and partisan fights on over football on Twitter and social media. I think it, it was really really great to to, to see it and feel this sort of unity against reeling against one thing and 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 defying. The few people who thought they could change football and change football for the whole of the game, you know, it would have. And I know that you know we we we've had all these arguments, we've had all these talks about how uh, how it would change it and and what we think of the people who've tried to do it. But it was it was just a, a sort of universal defiance against it. it was just um, yeah, it was something that we rarely get in football these days. Mm. What about you, John? David trumped me there. <laughs> it's a great shout. It's a great shout. But maybe that's the defining moment that will give fans a greater say. Let's certainly hope so. But look, I was going to choose something from on the pitch also because I was there. Look, I, I love Man City this season. They've absolutely blown me away. But I'm going to be really controversial and go for a Liverpool moment just because that Allison goal was just crazy. And I just love the emotion behind it as well in the base of the story. I mean, I was at that game. I was covering that game. It was last chance saloon. And basically, we're into the 95th minute. It's 1-1. Liverpool haven't played very well. And, yeah, we've seen that desperate thing where, yeah, the goalkeeper goes up front and then basically 99 times out of 100, say, what a waste of time. He'll have to scurry back in a minute. And then basically the ball's on a plate for him. It's a fabulous technical header as well, a glancing header. Amazing. And then the guy, about, you know, 20 seconds after the final whistle, stands on the touchline and gives the most passionate, emotional interview, paying tribute to his to his late father, which I think also kind of brought into the, the heartbreak of this season because it has been a heartbreak in so many ways. And I just thought that encapsulated it all. 
from the sheer despair and heartbreak to kind of the amazing, incredible moment. I love the, the ridiculous idea of goalkeepers scoring <laughs> goals. <laughs> and it's brilliant. And I love to see it. I mean, it's not the first time I've, I've seen one in the flesh either because I did Paul Robinson and Foster. And it's just... It's just brilliant, you know, it's just a magical moment. I love it. And it's just, I just thought that was a great day. Bearing in mind, I think the achievement of getting this Premier League season done and over the line, in amongst all the odds, I just thought that was brilliant. Love that day. John, what did you do when the goal went in? Did you go nuts? Yeah, basically. I went nuts from the point of view of, oh my, uh, listen, I embarrass myself sometimes in a press box because I love football so much. I love football so much. And I don't think sometimes people always appreciate this. And that basically, this is not about supporting a team. This is not getting passionate about one particular team. This is getting passionate about football. And when I see crazy, crazy moments, I do get... I do get so emotional. I can get loud. And I did on that moment. Just because the sheer incredible nature of it. When it went in, I, I was just... I wouldn't say I was up, up, up off my seat going, yeah, go on, go on, Alison. You know, it's just, but it was just an amazing moment. You think, oh, my God, I can't believe that. He's done it. You know, it's just, what a moment. It was just fabulous. It, it's, you know, it's a moment from the It's an individual moment from the season on the pitch that will live me, with me forever. Amazing. Well, I suppose it all goes to prove it's been a pretty strange ride, isn't it? My favourite memory is a sort of micro memory, really, and it was stimulated by a team sheet I found in a jacket pocket the other day. It was Berry AFC against Garstang six days before Christmas. Berry won 3 1. A restricted crowd of 150 was leaping up and down in the, in the rain. If I'm entirely honest, there wasn't too much social distancing going on in that particular moment. I just loved it. I just never felt closer to the spirit of the game. It doesn't matter how big the club is or how celebrated the players are. It's still the game that, that probably we all fell in love with as kids when it's pure. And I thought it was pure that. The other thing was, it proved to me that fans make football. Their voices have got to be heard. You know, as, as David said earlier on, the unanimity of protest and discussed with the Super League, I think, was a, an absolutely fundamental tipping point. Well, I hope so, anyway. I'd love to hear your thoughts, but in the meantime, thanks to John and David for their insight, and to you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.